The views and opinions expressed by individuals on the following program do not necessarily reflect those of the network, Guys Guy Radio, and its platforms. It's Guys Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins. Guys Guys Radio. We're here to inform you, empower you, inspire you, get you to think and feel, and who knows, maybe even act by virtue of the journey, stories, experiences, and insights from the guests I bring you each and every week to the show. And once again, this week is no exception. I've got two tremendous guests Two titans of industry who've been around uh, collectively for working for about 100 years between the two of them. They're like the Mick Jagger and Keith Richards of business. I've got Robert Dylan Schneider. He's written a book called The Public Relations Handbook, and he has been a leader and a beacon of knowledge for the public relations industry for the past 50 years, as well as Cyrus Friedheim. He's written a book called Commit and Deliver. And he has been a management consultant extraordinaire, as well as a CEO. He's worked in 25 countries, served on 17 corporate boards. Between the two of these gentlemen, they know a lot. And they're going to share a lot with us today. I think you're going to really enjoy the conversations. I'm going to ask a lot of pointed questions. And we're going to hear all about some of their experiences in the very fast-changing world of public relations, as well as uh, Cyrus uh, is going to talk to us about management consulting and a lot of the industries worked in that have really changed dramatically over the past 50 years, the automobile industry, the airline industry, the media industry, the food industry. He's seen it and done it all, as has Robert in public relations from a different perspective, more of a service orientation. And wow, between the two of them, it's like the Akashic Records of business knowledge for management consulting and public relations. So I'm so honored to have them on the show today. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So what else is going on? Well, we're rounding the turn, heading into summer of 2022. I guess last year at this time, people thought, well, we'll be way out of the pandemic and everything else. But we've got so much crazy stuff going on. We're still being challenged by, you know, some, they say there's another wave of the pandemic going on another variant and you've got the crazy monkeypox thing happening <laughs> and uh, i don't mean to laugh about it but it's like who would have thunk it inflation that is just skyrocketed and it's like wow the oil prices are ridiculously high as well as the oil company profits and i'm going to talk to cyrus about that because i think the oil companies could help out a little bit you know, it's beyond the drilling. It's they make a heck of a lot of money and they could, I'm sure, get together and kind of because they do get together and work on pricing. I'm sure if you look at the pumps, I never see gas on sale and it seems like it's pretty much similar prices everywhere. Anyhow, I think they could help out the American consumers and lower the prices a bit. And then we've got the stock market kind of going haywire now. And a lot of people, I think 15 percent of the stock market participators, if you will, people who are participating in the stock market, entered only the year 2020. Now, they've had a good ride, but now they're realizing like, wow, it doesn't just go up all the time. It's tough for a lot of people. On top of that, we've got the Ukraine war still happening. And all this stuff is connected, particularly with the money, because, you know, the retail, supposedly the retail sales are still bubbling along, but 
How long can that last? If you have so many people in this country living paycheck to paycheck and more and more, and some of them just can't do, then you have people going into deeper and deeper debt. You've got oil prices. How, how, do, you, how do you afford fuel for your car? How can you take your family out to a ball game? How can you go out to eat? How can you go on vacation? How can you just even buy the groceries you need for your family? Things are getting out of reach. And along with that, the real estate. Now, the real estate seems to be slowing down in terms of the price inflation there. But still, you know, when you have 20, 25 percent increases annually, how long can that go on? So we're in strange times. We're in new times. And my advice to everybody out there, as well as to myself, is don't get triggered. Don't overreact. Don't watch too much of the news. Just stay informed, but then stay out of the craziness because people are really on edge. And if you let yourself get sucked in, it's all fear that's being propagated out there. And you really have to distance yourself from that. Now, I learned a little practice. One of our special guests, Dr. Joe Vitale, I was watching some videos from one of his courses on Ho'oponopono. And one of the leaders of that, Dr. Lee Wen, he was talking about a breathing technique. So I'm just going to share that with you right now. Obviously, you don't want to do it while you're driving or this or that. You want to be home in a quiet place. But I do this. I started doing it a couple of weeks ago. I do it either first thing in the morning or last thing before I go to sleep at night. And that is called box breathing. So you inhale. It's very simple. Anybody can do it. You inhale to the count of 10. And you hold it to the count of 10. You exhale for the count of 10. And then you wait for the count of 10. And you do it again 10 times. That's it. And at the end of that process, and it only takes a couple of minutes, you'll feel refreshed. And it's a good thing to start, I find, for me at least, good thing to start my day, good thing to end my day. So consider it another tool for the, another arrow in the quiver, if you will, in terms of your well-being. So Guys Guys Radio, let's get right to our interviews with our two Really wonderful experts, Robert Dillenschneider and Cyrus Friedheim. Let's do it right now. It's Guy's Guy Radio. Okay, Guy's Guy's Radio. It's our interview portion of the show. And today we're going to discuss public relations with one of the really one of the deans of public relations. His name is Robert Dylan Schneider, and he is just an amazing man. And he's written a book that's been out for a number of years and constantly updated. It's called The Public Relations Handbook. And it's really a must read for anybody who has an interest in or is involved in the public relations industry. He's always been at the forefront of the public relations industry. He is the founder of the Dylan Schneider Group, headquartered in New York, Chicago. The firm provides strategic advice and counsel the Fortune 500 companies, and leading families and individuals around the world. Prior to that, Robert served as president and CEO of Hill and Knowlton from 1986 to 91, and he tripled the firm's revenue. And he's just really one of the deans of the public relations business. So I'm delighted that he's returning to us on Guys Guys Radio. So welcome to Guys Guys Radio, Robert Schneider. How are you doing? It's great to be on this show because it's so well-received by so many. It's a real credit to you and uh, your producers and others, because a lot of people talk about this show. So thank you for having me. Well, thank you. So let's talk about how has the role, how has public relations changed and the role of public relations evolved since you began in the business, Robert? Well, in the business, uh, in the beginning, public relations was really press relations. 
go down to the Third Avenue bar, meet a reporter, have a drink with him, give him a story, and hope you got a piece of the paper. That was it. Uh, today, it's very, very different. Uh, the whole public climate for companies and individuals now causes much more than the media and gets involved in all kinds of different things. So the real top public relations people advise companies, advise individuals on what to do. For example, I don't think Alec Baldwin has a good advisor because Baldwin is out there virtually every week with a problem about something that, that occurred uh, months ago. That should have been wiped away. So there are people getting good public relations. Uh, they're few and far between, but they're out there. And uh, I think they get good advice from a lot of serious people. Tell us a little bit about the uh, process for developing arguments and presentations and how that may have changed over the years. Uh, the idea in the beginning was to try to write down uh, a couple of sentences that were grabbers that really said to the audience, uh, listen to this. Uh, right now, uh, the demand for information is such that you can write a sentence, but then you better be able to back it up with a couple of pages of facts and statistics and examples that validate what you've done. So again, the classic public relations of, say, 30 years ago, no more. Uh, now you've got to have a very sophisticated approach to virtually everything you do. And uh, that's changed the business dramatically. If you don't have that, you run a tremendous risk. And that risk is people that are not on your side are going to take shots at you. People who are in the middle will question what you've done. And if you don't have answers, you probably have a problem. What, what are the differences, Robert, between corporate clients and personal clients? And which, as a executive, who very renowned re executive like yourself, who, who would you prefer representing? Or is it each individual case is completely different? But just if you could generalize, is it more well, is the, it better to work with a company or with an individual? The, the, the differences are huge. Uh, a company is owned by the shareholders, and the shareholders have, they, they beat, they, they vote with their feet. They're either in the stock or not in the stock. So it's much bigger than just an individual in a company. It's the shareholders, it's the employees in the company, it's the press who cover the company, it's a whole host of other the customers, a whole host of other audiences that the company has to be alert to and public relations needs to make, make sure they're alert to it. The individual is a different story. Uh, the individual generally says, here's what I want to achieve. There are three or four audiences important to me and we're gonna go after those. There was a man I worked with many years ago named Jay Pritzker. And I learned so much from Jay Pritzker. He's a brilliant guy. Maybe the smartest person I've ever met. Now, Pritzker used to sit with me for maybe a day. At the end of the day, we'd decide on who he was going to reach about his message. And it might boil down to one or two people. That was the session that, uh, that, that Pritzker and I came, came through. That doesn't happen in most public relations situations. Most people don't really understand it. There's a situation right now uh, in one of the states in this country where uh, there are probably 10 or 15 people that really make a difference in terms of what this company wants to achieve. That's it, 10 or 15 people. The amateurs look at the whole state and they say, it's the whole state, it's thousands, it's millions of people. Well, it's not really, it's the 10 or 15 that drive, drive the bus. So understanding who the audience is and what they can deliver and the difference they make 
and who they are is very important. Uh, we've done a little bit of research in this one case I'm talking about with the 10 or 15 people, and we found that two of the people uh, that uh, actually have very significant roles to play in the resolution of this matter for the client have police records, and uh, they don't want to be perceived uh, out there talking about this company. So that's a major factor in public relations has to take that into account. Well, it's really a lot of micro-targeting there and really getting to the person, the people who are going to be making the decisions that are going to affect things versus just shotgunning it out there. So that's a very interesting point. We have a, a kind of a cancel culture going on out there right now. What is your feelings about the cancel culture kind of av- an advocacy journalism right now? How, do, how, how do, would you manage that? How do you manage that? Well, advocacy journalism is out there and it's out there to stay. Uh, Bill Keller, who used to be the uh, managing editor of the New York Times, said about 15 years ago, we're not going to write news stories any longer. We're going to put the opinions of our reporters into the stories. And that made the New York Times an advocacy operation. And they do it today virtually every single day. The reporters' points of view are in those stories. For the casual person on the street, uh, he or she doesn't understand that. They see it as news, and that's a big difference. But advocacy journalism is here to stay. The way to, do, the, the way to deal with it is to figure out what the person's advocating for and really underscore that. That's critical to making that happen. With respect to media who are not advocacy, advocacy media, uh, they generally are much easier to deal with. You can generally lay out a program or a plan from A to Z, and they'll understand it if it's a properly done program, they'll use parts of it, or maybe maybe all of it. But it's very different from advocacy journalism. You really need to check in advance before you deal with a reporter or an editor to find out where they're coming from. Now, we currently are going through a big issue with the whole gas prices. It's hurting everybody, and a lot of fingers are being pointed. And there's a lot of information flying around there about, well, some say, oh, yeah, drill, drill, drill. But then it takes a while to get that the drilling things up and going. And there's other people that say, well, there's a lot of unused capacity right now by the oil companies. Then you have the oil companies who have made ridiculous profits over the last couple of years. I believe I read Chevron was up 84% last year. And they're also, the big oil companies are still getting subsidized. So the individuals are saying, hey, what's going on? And the first thing people are going to react and say, drill, 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 but it's a lot more complicated than that. What are the PR issues? And then you've got one last thing is you've got the oil lobby is huge in terms of they put in, I think, close to a half a billion dollars a year uh, in lobbyists. So what is the messaging for the pro-oil faction, if you will, and then people who are challenging what's going on and saying, hey, we're getting gouged? Well, the prices for oil and gas, gasoline are way up. Absolutely. One of the things the public has not really asked, the media has not really asked, is why are those prices going up? There are very good reasons, but they have not asked the question. A resolution of that question would be important. Now, if you were advising the client, the company, the oil and gas company, I think they need to make the case for why they are drilling, what impact the drilling has. Let's take care of the strategic petroleum reserve we have Let's not just kind of let that go. That was a mistake, in my opinion. But we've done it. 
let's uh, let's tell the story of serious people, just like your next door neighbor, out there in the oil fields drilling for oil, so that you will have uh, a, so a solid background, not just with your car, but with all the different products that are made because of petroleum. If I'm advocating against the oil companies, uh, I'm anxious to talk about what I consider the unseemly profits they're making. So maybe it takes a security analyst to say this company uh, to make just 6% should be doing this. And why are they doing that, which is so far beyond what, uh, what they should be doing? Maybe it takes something like that. It's clearly out of whack, clearly out of balance. The smart person in the public will say, why is that the case? And that, has, that question has yet to be answered. It's, it's fascinating because the, the average tax rate for the oil companies is 11.7%, which is lower than most of us are paying on our income tax. So it's really a tricky situation. And who, who always pays the price? The American consumer. So very sad times. But okay, my special guest, Robert Dylan Schneider, the public relations handbook is what we're talking about and the business of public relations. Now, you see a lot of folks out there get accused of certain things. And I find now more than ever a refusal on behalf of clients, if you will, to say to apologize or to take ownership of doing something wrong. It's always seems to be, well, if somebody was offended by this, it's always couched. It's never like I screwed up. What's what's going on there, Robert? Well, I think uh, a lot of people don't really understand how to deal with what I say is a crisis. But uh, in a crisis or in a situation like the one you just described, there's a basic rule. The basic rule is tell it all and tell it fast. So get it behind you, get it out there, and get it behind you so there are no more questions about it. If you piecemeal it out and drag it out over time, you're really looking at a very bad image. The second part of that is if you made a mistake, admit it, say you made the mistake and say that we regret it, here's how we're going to change what happened and we're gonna to try to come back. That can be done frequently. It's done infrequently, however. People don't want to admit they made a mistake. Fact is, uh, every day, there are mistakes out there, and they hurt big time. But people just won't admit it. They won't come to grips with it. Digital and social media must have changed PR dramatically because it, now it's not about the press releases. The you know news is instantaneous now. And it's affected every area of our lives. How, how do you manage them if you're a PR executive these days? Well, the social, media, the social media that are out there are very dramatic. They're totally uncontrolled. And they have to be seen for what they are. The best way to manage them is to say to yourself or say to your client, who are the two or three or four or five people that are going to make a decision that's going to affect your bottom line? I'm not saying ignore the social media, but focus on those two, three, or four, or five people, and they'll get the result you're looking for. With respect to the social media, uh, they're looking for a celebrity. They're looking for something that really uh, takes their audience and uh, titillates them, gets them excited. Uh, you've got to play to that, but not as dramatically as you should. Try to shut the, the social media down if you possibly can. It can be done, but you try to... You, you got to try to do it. You mentioned the the gaffes of Alec Baldwin's situation, where there's a lot of dribs and drabs and dripping of uh, information coming out there instead of just getting ahead of it 
putting out a statement and then going forward. Talk to us a little bit more about that. And you don't have to have that. We don't have to get into that specific situation, if you will, but the concept of getting out in front of something, being fast, putting it out there and moving on, if you can, versus a good campaign that's been done recently that you'd like to highlight. Uh, Baldwin is a great example. Uh, And uh, I'm sure that he's a wonderful human being, but he's been in the press so often, people are beginning to wonder was there really ammunition, live ammo, in that gun that he fired? No one really knows. But he's got to find a way, really in just a few sentences, to get that behind him and to get serious people who will support him saying he, Alec Baldwin, didn't do anything wrong and move on. Uh, somebody's out there fanning the flame. I'm sure it's not Baldwin. It's probably some lawyer somewhere who's trying to keep uh, keep Baldwin front and center so his client will... Uh, receive a payment. But you've got to talk, tell it all and tell it fast. That's the basic rule. Baldwin hasn't done that. Would you uh, choose, the name of the book is the Public Relations Handbook that you've updated a number of times, and it's really the go-to book for the industry. You've got some amazing people. Jonathan Dedman is in here quite frequently. You've also got Frank Lunds, uh, George Lentz, Christine Nichols. How did you choose them, and how did you get them to contribute in specific areas for you? Well, it's been a long, long haul, and I, I, I try to identify, first of all, the areas I wanted to cover. Uh, I know that the language you use when telling a story is extremely important. And the person who's just expert in that is Frank Lutz. He can tell you that uh, uh, you're using the wrong language or the right language. He can tell you what nouns and verbs to use. He's very good at that. Uh, I wanted to find out the best person when it came to local communications, because local communications are far different from national or international communications. So I got people who specialized in that. I wanted to find people who were capable of reaching out in Japan. And uh, again, Japanese customs, Japanese public relations, very different from what uh, we have now. China. Uh, China is a huge factor. And I want to get people that really know uh, China and know how it operates because it's very different from the rest of the world. So that's how I picked the uh, picked the topics, and I looked under each topic for the smartest person I could find and uh, asked them to write a chapter. And many of them did. Uh, I uh, I wish that I had been able to get people like Henry Kissinger. I did ask Henry, uh, but he said he just did not did not want to contribute. He's doing his own book, so that I took care of that. But uh, there are several people in this book who are well-known and uh, who have made a difference in their lives. Now, public relations is, a, is an area. I come from the advertising and marketing and uh, the brand management on the client side and account management on the agency side. And PR has always been kind of a separate silo, if you will. And sometimes we'd work together when we'd launch a new campaign. How does a public relations arm best integrate itself into the fiber and fabric of an organization to be effective and to help every department that it comes into contact with, whether it's introducing a new product, introducing, launching a new ad campaign, just having the uh, popular culture have a positive opinion about the company and its products. Advertising, great uh, medium, is paid communications. You pay for an ad, it appears on the air, it appears in newspapers, you pay for the ad. Public relations deals with non-paid communications. So you say to yourself, what arguments can I make uh, that will carry the day with the kind of audience I want to reach? 
one of the keys to both advertising and public relations is to find the audience. Once you define the audience, if there's advertising that makes sense, do it. If it, there's public relations that makes sense, definitely do that. So it's a huge difference. And I, I obviously, in the public relations field, the advertising industry is a huge and positive industry. Made a big difference out there. But uh, public relations can and has done the same thing. Mm-hmm. I would agree with you 100%. I worked with Michelle Rue when he took over the Stolichnaya brand after he had had such success with Absolute. And really, he used public relations, I think, expertly in that he integrated the concept of art with advertising. He did a lot of advertorials before, you know, before they became popular. Just an amazing example of how advertising and public relations can work together. They don't always work seamlessly together, though, because sometimes there's two different agencies. But I think there's a way to make it happen. And if you can do it, it's really going to be a benefit to the company and the, the brands you have. What's next, Robert? And what would be your advice to somebody who's entering the industry now? My advice to someone entering the industry now is uh, step back, uh, assess what your talents are, and definitely say what you want to do. Write down in two or three, two or three sentences what you want to do, and then figure out how you want to get there. And hopefully, if it's public relations, then that's good. But a lot of people don't really think about what they really want to do. And that's a major challenge for people. And uh, oftentimes they embark on things they don't want to do, but they just don't realize it until they're too far down the road. If you feel you're into, into something and public relations are going to be key to it, then figure out the elements of public relations that are going to apply. Read the book. It'll tell you a lot about uh, what to apply. Fantastic. The name of the book is The Public Relations Handbook, edited by the amazing Robert L. Dylan Schneider, my special guest on Guys Guys Radio. I hope you come back again. You really do terrific work and you're really an icon of the industry. And I'm honored to have you on the show. So thank you, Robert. Thank you very much. It's thrilling to be on the show. I really appreciate it. Robert Manny's The Guys Guys Guide to Love is a fast paced tale of flawed men and savvy women competing for love, sex, power and money in the city where they play for keeps. It's the men's successor to Sex in the City. The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love is a sexy romp through the fast-moving, high-stakes world of Madison Avenue. Available now on Amazon and wherever books are sold. It's Guy's Guy Radio. Okay, today we're going to talk about management consulting and how to manage your career. We've got one of the greats. His name is Cyrus Friedheim, and he's got a new book. It's called Commit and Deliver to help you get ahead in your career, especially when taking on a new direction in your work. We're also going to talk about how to grow professionally and how you think through complex business problems from the bottom through retirement. Today's guest, Cyrus, has done it all. 55-year business career, Union Carbine, Price Waterhouse, Ford, Booz Allen Hamilton, Chiquita Brands, Sun-Times Media. So he's been working across so many different categories, 17 corporate boards he's served on, numerous nonprofits, 25 countries he's worked in, and every continent besides Antarctica, and there's still time for that. He's author of Trillion Dollar 
Enterprise, and the new book, Commit and Deliver on the Frontiers of Management Consulting. It's a terrific book. I read it over the weekend. It's got great insights into Cyrus's career and also how to manage your own career. My very special guest on Guys Guys Radio, Cyrus Friedheim. Welcome to the show, Cyrus. Thank you very much, Robert. After all your years in business, what do you see as the role of management consulting today? And do you see it changing? <clears throat> yeah, the, 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 what's happened over the last uh, 50 or so years or more than that, since I joined in the middle 60s, uh, we were generalists. Today, they're specialists. They focus on industries and even within an industry on finance or marketing or things like that. And so that's the fundamental difference. But the, the primary mission of a management consultant is to work with the management of the company to run it better, to help them run it better. That has stayed the same. Like many folks, you started out in one career path and you kind of shifted to another, but you leveraged what you had learned and saw what really turned you on. So you went from chemical engineering to the business side and you worked with two major automobile manufacturers initially, Chrysler and Ford. Now, for decades, Ford and then GM and Chrysler, they dominated the market until the advent of the Japanese automakers who entered the market and had a feel for uh, efficiency in terms of production. What, what happened in the automobile market and why were our companies not paying attention? Well, uh, yeah, when I was with Ford, uh, uh, the U.S. automotive companies dominated both the U.S. market with uh, probably uh, 90, 95% of the uh, total sales and, uh, uh, and internationally. They were way over half of the international market. They got blindsided during the 70s. The Japanese came in with a small car that was significantly less costly. And the, the U.S. automotive company simply said, that's not what America's, Americans want to buy. And they were wrong. And they allowed Japan to get a marketing foothold, uh, meaning both distribution as well as acceptance of product during the 1970s. Today, the automotive uh, market in the United States, I think the U.S. companies are probably less than half. Uh, and Jap Japan is about a third. So it's a remarkable shift. And I say they were simply asleep at the switch. No, Common in a lot of industries. That's amazing because not only were they asleep at the switch back then, but then they let, let Lexus come into the market through the Japanese companies, which really took a luxury car and made it affordable. And everybody and let Lexus, I I I had one. They you just put the you just turn it on and it runs. They're very efficient cars. And so many Americans, they're a little bit wary about buying American cars. What what is your sense of all that now? Do you think uh do you think American car companies have now got a handle on this or is everything so interrelated now that, you know, the foreign car companies are in with the American car companies, the production is all over the place and you really can't tell the difference. What's really going on there? Sorry. Well, the Lexus story is being repeated today with Tesla. And uh, I mean, everybody saw the electric car as coming. Everybody. I mean, there wasn't a car company in the world that didn't understand that. I remember a conversation I had with uh, Wagoner, who was at that at that time just out of the CEO spot at uh, uh, at GM, and uh, he thought that uh, you know within by nineteen or twenty fifty, uh, probably half the cars on the road would be would be electric, and yet the American car companies allowed another company, 
Tesla to come in and preempt the market. It's a spectacular product with a completely different vision of how to build a car. The car companies tried to put, you know, replace the um, the the uh, internal combustion engine with an electric engine. What Tesla did is it took a computer and built a car around it. Fundamentally different approach. And that's basically what happened with the Japanese, uh, both in the early, in the 70s when they got into the market, as well as the Lexus, which I agree with you was a seminal change in the market when they built the Lexus for the United States market. It is not for the Japanese market, and it's it's designed to beat the uh, the top line U.S. companies and and the, uh, products, and they did it. Lexus is a spectacular product. Now let's uh, let's take a step back and look at this whole situation because a couple of things come up. One, I always wonder about like okay, for the last fifty years or so, there's been very little progress in terms of automobiles and even airplanes. We had the Concorde for a while; they took that back. Now there's something else that's kind of like that. You know, man has gone to the moon and then nothing for 50 years. The the cars we have, yeah, they have more computer parts, but it's still a, in the many, many ways, the fossil fuel combustible engine. Now it's being forced through, you know, shaking up the marketplace by Tesla. But what what is going on? And then with the gas prices going through the roof now c- connected with that, is this the fossil fuel companies kind of their last gasp is holding on and seeing how much profit they can squeeze right now before it's over or what's happening right now with the whole industry with cars, fossil fuel, moving to new energy resources. And do you think technology is being held back from the American public? Yeah, no, I don't think technology is being held back. Uh, we're moving, but more moderately, the, the, the car companies are, or I should say the industry is moving at a more moderate pace than the media would want and that the government wants, uh, but uh, we can't we can't shut down fossil fuels right now because we happen to be dependent on fossil fuels. We don't have the electric capacity to have all electric cars, for example. We the transition is a gigantic transition. It doesn't. It is not just the product, or not even just the energy source. It's how it's distributed. And you got you got uh, right now. You've got service stations all over the country. With gas, you've got uh, different kinds of uh, of, uh, of sales vehicles that are all going to be replaced. We're in a huge transformation of the industry, so I think we need to be a little patient. Uh, it, it's clearly what's happened. We had a little blip in the energy market, and we we have so downgraded the importance of fossil fuels and hindered their expansion and filling the needs of uh, a society like ours when we have a hiccup in Romania, or excuse me, in Ukraine, uh, that we we just have to realize this transition has got to be managed in a much more thoughtful way. You know, it's still not clear whether the all-electric engine or some hybrid is going to be the winner because the the, uh, requirement for electricity for an all electric vehicle and the inefficiency of delivering that in today's with today's technology is so great that our consumers may say no I'd rather go hybrid because hybrid you know develops its own electricity so you don't have to have new power plants 
which is a tremendous advantage. And, and maybe even if you look at the whole energy equation, it might be a energy conservation or even CO2 uh, a reduction program or, or a solution to have the, the uh, hybrid rather than the all electric. Mm-hmm. So uh-huh. a couple of big questions that let to go. I totally get it. But the gas prices, what do you see happening over the next uh, six months to a year? I mean, is this the new normal now? We're going to have $6 gas all the time? Or I mean, there's 264 <coughs> billion gallons barrels of, of fuel. The United States has more fuel than any place. The uh, OPEC is not releasing, their, you know, they turn the tap on and off. It seems like the American consumer is being, uh, the, the foot is on the neck there. What can, what can be done? What's going to happen here? This is not, this. everything seems to be going crazy where the market's down and the prices are up and people are already living paycheck to paycheck and coming out of the pandemic and now monkeypox and all this stuff. It's like, what, what's going on here, Cyrus? You've been around well, for a long time. What's happening? <laughs> right. I, I th- my view, and, and you know, this is just one person's view, but, but it's that it is informed by a lot of history and, and what's, what's going on, is that uh, we will have high gas prices until supply returns. And, uh, and supply and demand balance. Uh, right now, we've got demand exceptionally higher, a lot higher than supply. And so the uh, uh, dragging, the government dragging their feet on new leases uh, or, or even canceling leases, is just crazy right now you have to, if you want lower gas prices. If you believe that the, the world is going to explode in a year if we don't cut CO2 down, well, then, yeah, that might be a good solution. But I don't believe that. I believe that the CO2 problem is a very long-term problem, and our economy is a short-term problem, which we must fix, because we've got probably 100 million people that are worse than living paycheck to paycheck. They're going without, mm-hmm. and not just infant formula, but they're going without, and because they can't drive. For example, the uh, diesel <clears throat> is up over $6, and that's our whole infrastructure. You know, all the trucks and trains and pla- not planes, but trucks and, and railroad and uh, require diesel. Well, the guys that are, are the truckers, they're getting killed. And so they've got to raise their prices. So this is forcing prices up. The idea that the government is going to uh, take a couple of dribbles out of a, a very small diesel uh, uh, reserve is is showboat. That's political. That's not going to have any impact at all on the price of diesel. We need more diesel oil to supply the trucks and trains and other vehicles that are <clears throat> supplying, you know, taking care of the supply chain. Until we get the supply chain fixed, you know, we're not going to have uh, infl- inflation won't moderate. How, what's your timetable? What do you see until we have some easing? Well, it depends on uh, very much on what we do. You know, if the government changes policy, I think six, nine, 12 months would be a reasonable time frame. If the government continues to have its foot on the throat of, of, uh, of uh, uh, oil production, no, it could be, would be in a couple year slump. You know, but, you know, just a little pushback on that because I've been reading and it said, I read that we have the largest reserves in the world's 264 billion barrels. And that by the time you opened up new leases and got that oil out there, it could be a couple of years and the whole situation could change. So this like drill, drill, drill doesn't really seem 
there seems to be a little bit of crying wolf there because you also have OPEC that can increase production whenever they want. Right, right. But they don't because they're operating their own self-interest. And their self-interest says they look at the balance and they say, if we pump more oil, the price will go down, we'll make less money. And so they're operating in their self-interest, which we should expect them to do, just like we are. But uh, now the the problem, and, and I, I, I'm not expert enough to get into the actual lease leases that are being held up, but the government has slowed down the new leases. Yes, it will take time on a brand new field, but other fields like, like the uh, uh, fracking can crank up with in very quickly and the prices that make it very attractive. So yes, we can, we can accelerate the production of oil uh, and gas near term if the government pushes it. My very special guest, Cyrus Friedheim, his book is Commit and Deliver on the Front Lines of Management Consulting. So let's let's move around the world now, because as part of your work, you work with the oil, you worked with the gas, excuse me, you worked with the auto companies, you worked with the airlines, and then you got in your management consulting, you went to Brazil, France, Australia, Argentina, Chile, Japan. Tell us about what you learned about uh, kind of humanity from your travels and doing business around the world. There are a lot of smart people out there. There really are. And the problem that they face and, and the countries you mentioned were mostly countries that are either developed countries or on their way to be like Brazil. Uh, Argentina is just continues to shoot themselves in the foot politically. So they just can't get their uh, their stuff together. Unfortunately, uh, a country which has extraordinary resources. But uh, take uh, take Brazil, for example. Brazil has uh, a lot of people, a reasonable education level, not as good as, as Argentina, but they've got a lot of smart people. And, uh, and they've gone back and forth between military dictatorship and democracy. And unfortunately, many of their sallies with democracy have been ridden with corruption. So in my mind, the biggest issue facing the developing world is just that, it's corrupt government. I've re- I'm writing a new book called A Star of Africa, which uh, takes <clears throat> a, a mythical country and the dictator decides in his old age to convert it from a, a horrible totalitarian dictatorship <clears throat> into a democracy. And it, it deals with the, this kind of problem. What does it take for these countries to be successful? I think they can be. I think the United States and Europe have a large role to play in getting them if we don't just go in there and rape and pillage right. their economies, which is what happened in Africa for the last 200 years. But, but I, so I, I believe a lot of these countries have the potential. They've certainly got smart people and with help and with financing, they could, they could come around, but they've got to do it with, um, without corruption, because corruption is corrosive to development. That's tough. But you mentioned the whole idea, you know, the concept of predatory capitalism, which kind of can get in the way sometimes because yes. you, want a, you want a free market, but the free market sometimes can be as corrupt as the government. But, but it seems like the free market can work out some of its problems a lot more efficiently than government. In other words, if you had a pile of dirt in front of your house, who would you want to remove it, the government or a private company? And I'd say most smart people would say the private company just is more efficient. So we just have to have some guardrails in terms of uh, 
some of the public right. uh, public corporations. Media. You got into the media business with the Sun Times in Chicago, just at the point where, and I was in the same business where in advertising where things moved from print to digital. What do you see happening now? Is it over for print? Well, I, I think that print will, will print will last forever in some forms. But the, the daily newspaper is certainly a, uh, a threatened animal. Uh, I see a few newspapers continuing, uh, the national ones, but we're losing, I don't know how many hundreds of newspapers every year uh, for the last, well, since I was in the business, which was a little over 10 years ago. Um, uh, and I do, I do see it continuing. The key measures you look at are what are the revenues of circulation and advertising. They're the two key things that keep newspapers afloat. And both of those are declining at a pace of somewhere between five and in the case of advertising, it was for a while it was 10%. I'm, I'm not current on the last few years, but at that pace, uh, only one thing can happen. The newspapers are shrinking, which they already have done, and they're going out of business. But remarkably, uh, they're holding on. Uh, my old paper <clears throat> recently sold, I think for the third time since I was there, to a not-for-profit. This is a new model. And I've talked to other newspapers which are th- considering the same thing. So there are models that, uh, uh, that, that are important. One of the things that I did <clears throat> when I first uh, joined the Sun-Times is we did a study of cohorts over 65, and then every 10-year group under that. And the curve of regular readership was quite clear. For the over 65 group, it was 75%. Right. You know, it's remarkable. And then it just went straight down to like 10% for those coming out of college. My kids don't read newspapers. My grandkids may or may not know what a newspaper was. So do I see there a future for them? Not a growth future, certainly. There may be some specialized things. We maybe have a couple of general newspapers like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, but that's probably it. Okay, Chiquita Brands, you, I mean, your business career is amazing and your insights are so spot on. When you got uh, in, you were CEO of Chiquita and you learned very quickly that they're a, a commodity type product, that branding is not as leverageable a tool as it is for other types of consumer products. You want to just touch on that real quickly? Sure. In the 40s, uh, for those of us who were around at the time, we were drilled with the Chiquita uh, limerick, Chiquita banana. The jingle, right. The jingle, yeah. Tremendous. So name recognition was gigantic. And grocery stores were small, and they they all carried Chiquita. Chiquita carried a premium of about 20% over the uh, the other products, including Dole and Del Monte, the other two branded products. And the other stuff that's coming in, like from Ecuador, the, for probably 40%. Well, during the 60s and 70s, the grocery industry consolidated, first regionally, then nationally. And of course, then the, the uh, manager of the purchasing said, well, why am I paying more for Chiquita? It's a banana. I mean, you look at the two, you know, and if you don't have a sticker on it, you can't tell the difference. You can't taste the difference. They are, are, matter of fact, they're the same strand of of plant 
on all companies. So uh, they have lost their brand position. And um, in the United States, <clears throat> they couldn't get a, a premium. And yet we were still advertising. We were still treating it like a brand. And I said, no, brands sell based on advertising and quality and issues like that, at least quality in the mind of the buyer. Commodities sell on price. We had a, a, um, a canned vegetable business, for example, that oh, 10 cents could change the sale uh, on a contract for a case of 40 cans. And so that's what, that's what uh, commodities are like. Now, bananas haven't gotten down to that low a margin, but, but they are because they are, there are product differences and quality that, you know, in the processing and, and delivery of them. But we changed the economics and the treatment of it dramatically when I went to Chiquita. Fantastic insights. The name of the book, Commit and Deliver on the Front Line of Management Consulting. You'll learn so much from this book. I did. And it's really insightful. I got to give you credit because you are so adaptable. You have so much great experience. Thank you. Thank you, Cyrus Friedheim, for being my special guest here on Guys Guys Radio. Thank you, Cyrus. Thank you, Robert. It's Guys Guy Radio. Okay, fantastic conversations with two heralded business titans, if you will, Robert Dylan Schneider and Cyrus Friedheim. Uh, collectively, what did we learn? I, I think we learned that people in business who've been around for a while and who've had a lot of success, they, they know the ropes and they've been through a lot of different situations, a lot of different market climates, if you will, and environments, and they've managed to keep going. And it's very inspirational when you're speaking with people like that because they, they, they have, not only do they have knowledge and experience, they have reached the point where they have wisdom. And more often than not, I find that folks in that position are happy to share what they have learned with the next generation. So thank you, Robert, and thank you, Cyrus, for uh, being on the show and uh, sharing so many insights in terms of how business itself runs and why, you know, the, the globe is so connected, we're all connected, and we all have to respect different cultures, and the more we can come together, the better off we'll be. So Guys Guys Radio, we're here every Wednesday evening on KCAA Radio here in Southern California, 102.3, 106.5 FM, 1050 AM. The podcast, my YouTube, and now Rumble are uh, posted and airing worldwide everywhere. You can catch them on whatever podcast platforms and you can watch the interviews on uh, YouTube and Rumble. And we also have a new feature on the YouTube channel that we're gonna start uh, very soon. It's called Guys, Guys, Guides. And we're gonna have guests that are on the show and some guests who are not on the show and they're gonna get on for an extra little overtime, little 10 minute segment. And they're gonna, they're gonna share two tips to the audience about their area of expertise. So it's very YouTube searchable and power packed with content. And I think you're really gonna enjoy that. And that's coming up very, very soon. Look for it on my YouTube page, Guys, Guys, Guides. So uh, we're also, uh, the show, the radio show, KCAA, it rebroadcasts every Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific time. So between 
the terrestrial radio, the podcast, the YouTube, the Rumble. There's no reason why you can't find us on Guys Guys Radio, someplace where you consume your content. And if you enjoy the content and the guests I bring you each and every week, I would ask you just one thing, and that is to subscribe to the YouTube channel and subscribe to uh, wherever you listen to the podcast. That really helps a lot. doesn't cost you anything, and you get all that free content. So thank you for considering that. You can also check me out on my website, robertmanny, M-A-N-N-I.com. I've got over 300 uh, blog posts about life, love, the pursuit of happiness. We've also got three free chapters of my novel, The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love, which is a source material for all things Guy's Guy. It's been called the male successor to Sex in the City. It's a fast, fun, frothy story about two dudes in advertising competing for love, sex, power, and money. The women seem to enjoy the book because it's uh, fast and fun. It's a little peek behind the curtain into that weird, odd world of modern men. And for guys, uh, they can relate to it because it's like, hey, there's a book that's finally about us. So people seem to really enjoy it. And it's a great summer read. So I hope you'll check that out. And again, you can download three free chapters and make your decision based on that. So Guys Guys Radio, I'm here every Wednesday. We've got so many guests lined up. We've got the whole summer booked. It's going to be fantastic. Stay safe out there. I want to thank all my guests for being on the show. I've interviewed over 600 people. We've done over 515 shows. I want to thank my wonderful producer, Chris. And also, most of all, I want to thank you, my audience, for being there. And I'm here for you to bring you these guests, the content, the information. And if you want to use it, it's yours. And if you don't want to use it and you just hear it and listen to it and say, hmm, interesting, but not for me, that's cool too. You got to do what you got to do. It's your life. I'm here to, to serve. So thanks for being here. I'm going to see you next week. So until then, like I always like to say, guys, guys, finish first. Finish first.